2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. I'll give you a chance to get there. Uh, use your device. Feel free to do that as well if you don't have a, if you don't have a, a, a paper Bible there. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, this is a part of Paul's great collection of letters. And it's amazing how uh, these things are going to flow together from what Pastor Timothy spoke on about the gospel and its effect and its work uh, there from Romans, Paul's letter uh, to the Romans. And then here, uh, Paul's exhortation to Timothy uh, in his leadership and in his life and in his work and the benefit of the word, commending him to the word. And I hope it'd be great benefit to us as well. So Second uh, Timothy chapter three, we're just going to read a couple verses here and then we will pray. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. That the man and or woman of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Uh, if you'll pray for me, I'm going to pray for you and we're going to ask God for his help. Father, uh, we hide behind your word now. Uh, it is not about the man who speaks, but the God who has spoken. And so that's what I pray. That's what we pray collectively here. That you would hide me behind your hand, that you would open up our hearts to receive good news, that you would challenge our minds and our thinking, that you would draw out of us honesty as we stand before the living God. And that we would rejoice in the wonder of your gospel, the power of your spirit and your desire to transform from glory to glory until we are one day perfected. Uh, move among us now. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son, and you, glorious Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. Amen. I want to begin uh, our time with a not-so-rhetorical question, and I'm framing that purposely that way, because it's one that I've wrestled with in my context in America, uh, particularly in the South. If you've heard of the South, uh, it is the burned-over remnants of the Bible Belt. And it's something that, that has been deeply concerning me for some time. And here it is. Is it, is it possible to know the word without interpreting your world through the word? Think about that. Is it possible to know the word of God without interpreting your world, the full breadth of your world, through that word? I'll frame it this way. Is there a difference in having great biblical knowledge and having a biblical worldview? That's an important question. That's an important question. I found that in America, the answer to those two questions is a resounding yes. And I imagine here for you Kiwis and you Aussies that it would be a resounding yes as well. That there seems to be a a very uh, real, very real uh, sense that in Western culture, where Christianity has had some foothold for some time, that we have many, many people filled with great knowledge about what the Bible says, but it has very little impact on how they interpret their world, how they live their lives. They've been exposed to the tenets of Christianity and to the narrative of scripture. And yet, 
every single day in the decisions that they make, in the desires of their heart, in the way that they lead, the Word of God very often finds itself as a last resort instead of a limitless resource. Let me try to tease this out with an illustration. Right now, there's a great deal of turmoil in my nation. Uh, I don't know if you keep up with American news that much. I don't imagine that you would want to, because most of it is pablum. Uh, garbage. <laughs> Rubbish. That's how Timmis would say it. Yeah. It is all rubbish, right? <laughs> He's not here to defend himself. That wasn't fair. <laughs> um, <laughs> you did this. <laughs> There's a great deal of turmoil, uh, on a serious note, in, in our nation right now. And maybe you've, you've kept up with some of the news, but let me kind of flesh it out for you. Uh, an unarmed teenager, African-American teenager, was killed, um, perhaps in the line of duty, perhaps not, by a police officer who happens to be white, who happens to have had an issue historically with relating to depressed communities and, and minority communities who, who happens uh, to work in and for a city that has a long history of segregation and systemic oppression. And what this event has done is created a powder keg, a, a literal explosion of emotion and a, and a, and a chasmic division between uh, the races and classes of my nation. Not holistically, that would be a generalized statement, but I would say the vast majority, the greater percentage, it has been divided along these lines. And it has revealed an unfortunate truth about where we are in actuality as a people. It's revealed that all of the unity that we have been discussing over the past decade or so is actually more paper mache than it is reality. It's revealed what's in the heart, in many cases, of American Christians. And though all the facts are not in and I am not there to adjudicate the case or adjudicate the matter, what I have noticed in the midst of this obscurity and what remains clear is that a teenager's life has expired. That a town is exploding and that a nation is torn. Now as Christians, you would think that there would be a common lament you would think because of what we believe and what we say we understand and because of the word of God that there would be a common lament, a mourning over the death of a teen, the state of our nation and the broken systems that would create an environment where this could happen. Sadly though, what has been prevalent is apathy and ambivalence. What has been prevalent even has been anger against anyone who would call what took place there in Ferguson, Missouri, an injustice. And it's been by people who say they are submitted to the word of God. 
The same word of God that laments the brokenness of nation. The same word of God that laments the oppression of peoples. The same word of God that longs for the restoration of Christ to permeate every community. There's a fascinating disconnect between these people, these people of the word, and how it is interpreting their world. Let me give you one comment that will maybe cement and solidify what I mean. And it's kind of been the primary line upon which all comments have been made, and it's been this, that that boy got what he deserved. There's been ones that are much more inflammatory, but I won't even pierce your ears with such horrible things coming from people who say, that they believe in the word of God. And so even though that's an extreme example that makes the point as we consider our initial question, doesn't it? Of course, it's possible to know the word without interpreting your world through the word. Of course, it's possible to have great and incredible biblical knowledge without having a biblical worldview. Of course, it's possible. After all, the definition of a worldview is the fundamental cognitive orientation of an individual encompassing the entirety of their knowledge and point of view. In other words, everything you think and know and feel and do should be encompassed in how you view and interpret the world. And if you're a person of the word, then the word should interpret the world for you. Amen. Now. We didn't need that example to come to that conclusion. Because the reality is we only need to examine our own hearts. I only need to examine my own heart to know that largely, day to day, we don't interpret the breadth of our world through the word. That largely, day to day, we don't interpret the breadth of our world through the word. We interpret it through our cultural lens. We interpret it through our educational lens. We interpret it through our uh, racial lens or our, uh, our ethnic bias. We interpret it through our economic lens. We interpret it through so many things but the word of God, which is supposed to be the foundation for everything that we believe. And if we're interpreting our world through anything but the word, then how can we lead people in the world through the word? But here's the joy, here's the good news, that it doesn't have to remain that way. It doesn't have to remain that way. We don't have to continue to look through temporal lenses to understand how to lead, how to love, how to live. Because we've been given this great treasure. And I'll go ahead and state my hope at the outset. My hope at the outset is that by the end of this, you will have such a burning passion for the word of God that you would box all the leadership books sitting on your shelf for the next year and see what God has to say about how you lead his people. That's the challenge I've placed on myself. It's one I hope you accept. Because here in Paul's charge to Timothy, is an incredible reminder of the value of the word and its benefit in every single aspect of his life, particularly when it came to leading himself and leading others. 
Amen? So look at this with me. And uh, I will try to be mindful of my time. Plus, as Steve said, I am literally tanning and I don't need one. Um, God has saw fit to make me a beautiful caramel. And I want to stay that way. Sorry, facts are facts. Can't argue with that. Them old preachers will say, I got one now. I got, I got one. <laughs> yeah, that's a, so I'm not ready for that yet. That'll be my next trip. It'll be my next trip. Verse 16. I'm just going to break this down. Paul writes to Timothy in the midst of uh, this broader context and instructing him on how to, again, lead himself and lead others. That is the framework. Okay. That is the framework of Paul's letters to Timothy. How do you lead yourself? How do you lead others? It's one of my favorite little sections in scripture. How do you lead yourself and lead others? Have a little wine for your stomach because people are crazy, right? That's in there. That's in the book. In fact, in the original language, it actually translates to bourbon. Uh, but you got to go to seminary for that. You got to go to seminary for that. How do you lead yourself and lead others? Your work are approved by God. How do you lead yourself and lead others? So he's going through all of these implications of this one reality to this young pastor. Now, if you're not a pastor, I still think it's applicable. Because you need to lead yourself, and at some point, God may allow you to lead others. So within this broader context, he says this in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. So the first thing you have to ask yourself in relation to allowing the word to interpret your world is how you actually view what's between these pages. One of the saddest stories that, I, that I've ever heard, and, and simultaneously uh, um, hopeful, is when one of my brothers was telling me about the Christians in Sudan, where they are not allowed to have Bibles. And so there was one prison camp in particular where, where they had one page of scripture, just one page. And every single day while they were in confinement, some literally sitting in boxes where, where there was only enough space for you to be in this position, they would hand that page of scripture around and round and round and round and read it over and over and over and over. Now why is that? Well, it's because they saw the, the endless value in the word of God. And so, so you got to ask yourself, when you, when you read the first part of this verse, all scripture is breathed out by God. That, that literally means that scripture is filled with God's breath and that it breathes from it the very spirit of God every time we engage it. You've got to ask yourself how you view this book. I know in America, 
that there is 2.1 Bibles for every household. And yet I've seen more of them curled up in the back of car windows than I've seen in the hands of God's people. Why is that? Well, because I think that somewhere along the way, we lose sight of this simple reality. I want to know God. I want to talk to God. I want to feel God. I want to experience God. I want God to lead me. I want God to speak to me. I want God to answer me. All scripture is breathed out by God. And so when our faith is stagnant and our prayers feel stale, and for those of us who are preachers, our preaching feels uh, 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 static and, and mechanical. Why is that? It's because we are no longer indulging on the breath of God. No, we open up the Bible to prepare our sermons or our small group communication. We open up the Bible to find a verse that can fix a moment rather than seeing this full compendium of the will and the work and the heart and the knowledge of God and his love for creation and his overwhelming desire to reconcile all things to himself. I've set that baby. Somebody go tell that mama I'm sorry back there. <laughs> I yell because I'm excited, not because I'm angry. <laughs> but this is a serious question. How do, how do, you, how do you see this book? Do, do you savor it? Do you, do, you, do you believe that there is life between these pages? Do, do, do you believe that, that, that when you are reading this book, that it's actually reading you? Do you believe that, that, that when you look between these pages, that the Spirit of God is manifesting himself in the heart of the one who longs to believe? Isn't that what Pastor Steve just told us? I love when the Holy Spirit does that. I call that the dovetail by the dove. <laughs> Man tears up the Bible after cutting off the head of a missionary, starts reading the breath of God, and God messed around and saved that fool. <laughs> all of our tricks, all of our pragmatics, all of our interesting ways in which we want to communicate all of the, the, the books that we read on how it is that you go about communicating the gospel after you've befriended somebody for 17 years. <laughs> and all we got to do is get them in front of the word. That's all we got to do is get them in front of the word. Get them wrestling with the word. Isn't that the existential crisis? All we got to do is get them wrestling with the word. How do you view this thing? Do you, do you really believe that it is, it is filled with the breath of God? You know, I had another brother tell me a story. Jason Martin, dear brother, been a big brother to me since I came in the network. And he was in a Muslim country. And they were 
doing a small work there, but a, but a, a rapidly growing work. The Holy Spirit was just, just saving people in crazy ways, right? Like brothers are out in the province walking goats, and the Lord's like, hey, I'm here. And they're like, you hear that goat? You know, it's like, <laughs> sky's talking. And people just getting saved. And so they had this little, this little seedling church movement starting to happen. And he was visiting one of those churches, and, 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 and they, were, they were getting ready to break open the word of God. He was getting ready to teach, and he, he went to sit the Bible, his Bible, down on the ground. And one of those brothers who had gotten converted from Islam, a faith where, where the Quran holds the highest position in the home, if you didn't know that, they put it up above everything else as a display that they live their lives under the Quran. Amazing, right? Should be convicting, convicted me. He said that brother who had just gotten converted from Islam scooped that Bible up, put the Bible in his chair, and he sat on the floor. And he turned to this pastor who's supposed to be leading him and says, we never put the word of God below us. I remember hearing that story like, man, why does he treat the Bible with such care, such affection? I've got to believe it's because he believes that therein the spirit of God dwells for any who would seek him. You want to talk about leading from the word? Well, first, in order to lead from the word, first, you've got to believe that the word is actually the breath of God. Because if you are going to be a Christian leader, then you are following the breath of God. The Ruach, the, the spirit of God. So Paul tells young Timothy here that what you have in your hands is filled with the very presence of God. And if you ever find yourself in a particularly difficult situation where you don't know what decision to make, why don't you consult the one who made you? You'll find his heart between these pages. Well, then he goes on to the specificity of the word's usefulness and a few verbs here that I just want to unpack briefly. First, he says that the, that the word, this, this that has been breathed out by God, this that is filled with the breath of God, this that will visit us with the presence of God when we engage it. He said first that it's profitable for teaching. That it's profitable for teaching. Now that word teaching, uh, obviously, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to know what the word teaching means. Uh, it means instruction. It means uh, a, a, a set of disciplines, a way of being, a way of, it, it means taking a body of knowledge and a body of content and applying it to the actuality of life. Is that not leadership? What do you do when you're leading someone? Well, you're taking them from 
point A down a particular path to point B for the purposes of accomplishing the greater goal as well as developing in them who they will be on the way to that goal. And so Paul extols his young students saying that, that you don't need a whole bunch of fancy techniques. I almost said a bad word. I was going to say funky and fancy, and it was about to become something else. <laughs> Woo! The Holy Spirit spares the ones he loves. <laughs> you don't need a bunch of fancy techniques. I mean, there, there's going to be particular instruction on how to play a guitar, how to, how to lead a song, how to lead a group. There's going to be particular instruction in your field on how, how, how to multiply the bottom line or come up with a, with a budget. There's going to be particular instruction there. But the foundation for that instruction is to shape and develop the heart of the person who would be following it. And so the word is used for teaching character and the word is used for teaching Competence and the word is used for teaching the joy of Christ through turmoil and difficulty. The word is used for teaching us how to live in a world that is fractured and wonky and broken. How to live in a way that sets us apart from our peers. Here's an example you're in business. You have the inside scoop on the stock trade. You can make a lot of money in a short amount of time. What keeps you from rationalizing that decision? You know how Christians do, right? Well, if I, I mean, you know, it's technically not against the law. And when I make this money, well, then we can raise past the salary uh, off the tithe from this money and, and build the new building cash. And I can pay off all my debts. And the Bible says to try and be debt free and be wise with your money. You know, we do that. Of course, we do that. We can justify just about anything. In order to do what it is we desire, what keeps us from doing that? Being instructed in the character of Christ. Being instructed in the content of the word of God. Being instructed in the way that we ought to live when we have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. Being taught, as it were, how to lead ourselves and lead others in a world that lacks leadership and conviction in the way that Christ would have it be. The word of God is good for that. The word of God is profitable for that. Not only that, but the word of God is profitable for reproof. It means reprimand. If you're going to lead people every now and then, you have to smack their hand when they reach for the cookie jar. It's not pleasant. It's not pleasant. But what's the alternative? Cowardice. Passive aggression. Unhealthy work environment. 
bullying. That's the alternative. I remember my, my, my second appointment as a staff pastor. I worked for one of the most passive-aggressive people I've ever met in my life. He wasn't leading me. He just do little things to undermine me, to try to get me to do what he wanted me to do. Anybody can identify with that? It's terrible, right? Make you want to fight somebody. People my size should never be angry. <laughs> never. It's not profitable for anybody. Somebody goes to the hospital, I go to jail. That's not good. And the reason why I use it, because I was doing some stuff wrong. Not sinful, just wrong. Just not the way he would have me do it. But instead of reprimanding me, instead of leveraging the word of God to shape me, he would just passively aggressive, uh, passive aggressively undermine me. Which would only raise my ire and produce rage. Which then I would have to subsequently repent for. Which would only allow him to proceed in his passive aggression. That is a cycle of a broken relationship. But what, if he, what if he leaned into the word of God to reprimand the one he was leading? To reprove me. It's happened. Pastor Mass reproved me before. I needed it. Papa Steve reproves everybody whether you need it or not. <laughs> he does. I'm glad for it. I'm like, I didn't need that arrow right now, but I'll probably need it later, so I'll just leave it in there. I'll just. <laughs> I'll just leave it there. Is it, I'm not going to bleed. I'll paste it up. I'm not going to bleed out. I'll just leave it there. Oh, there's a, there's a required courage to lead. And it means that sometimes you have to reprimand people for not being in step with the gospel that they say they believe. Or, more simply, not following the instruction that you ask them to follow. Paul did this in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Peter, as always, I mean, I am convinced of two things. One, that the kingdom of God is going to be incredible. And two, that Peter is going to punch me in the face <laughs> the first time he sees me. Because I'm always dumping on Peter. I feel bad. But he was always doing stuff. Right? He's eating with the Gentiles, having a good time. At a cookout, eating some pork ribs, enjoying himself. Other Jews show up. He don't want to eat. He don't want to eat with the homies no more. Right? His good friends who were Gentiles, the homies. I, I know you listen to hip-hop over here. Don't act like you don't. The homies. You listen to hip-hop. Don't play. He didn't want to eat with them no more. He wanted to go back and hang with the Jews. He wanted to shun them in the presence of those people. And Paul came up and he reproved that joker. He reprimanded him. He said, what you're doing is wrong. 
in the face of God. What you're doing is wrong in the context of the gospel. What you're doing is wrong and antithetical to the word that we have received. And if you're going to lead from the word, then it's going to require you to reprimand people. To not be cowards. To not be gun shy about saying the hard thing. And what makes it different, what, what makes it different is that you do it in the character of Christ. You do it in the spirit of love. You do it from the power of the spirit. You do it from the depths of the word. Yep. Not to control people, but to shape their character. The word is profitable for teaching. The word is profitable for rebuke. The word is profitable for correction. That means writing error. I've always wondered why Paul separated those things out. I think because one follows the other. The reprimand is you did that wrong. The correction is this is how you do that correctly. That's what leadership is. One of the greatest failures of leadership is to be told what you're doing wrong and never shown how to do it right. But if you leave from the words, you won't do that. If you leave, let, let, let me back it up two steps. If you leave from the word, then you'll teach them what to do. And you'll take the patience to teach them how to do it correctly. And then because we are all ultimately sinful and in need of a savior, they're going to step to the left of that. And so you're going to reprimand them. But you're not going to leave them bleeding and busted. You're going to point them back to the gospel and then you're going to show them how to do it right. The word of God is good for that. The word of God is profitable for teaching. The word of God is good for reproof. The word of God is great for correction. And the word of God is great for training in righteousness. That word training there means the process of instilling skill, knowledge, and experience. The process of instilling skill, knowledge, and experience. You don't just wake up one day and you're a leader doesn't work that way. Now, I know you're 24 and, and you wait at tables and, and you, were the, you were the team lead for all the servers. Okay, still got a little time left. Cultivate some skills. Those are the guys that seem to want to come across my path every time they want to plant a church. I'm like, well, what have you done? Well, you know, I worked at Blue Bayou Water Park as a lifeguard for two years. And- <laughs> And uh, I was personally responsible to keep people from drowning at the bottom of the slide. Okay, anything else? Well, no. I mean, after that, I went to college. And then I got married. I said, and what do you think about this, sweetheart? Oh, I don't want to be here. You know, that's... (laughs) I'm like, oh, wow, that went south very fast. No, the word is useful for training, for a lifetime of training. When you read the letters of Paul, you can even see a growth in cultivation in his own training through his writing. Where he is at the end of his life versus where he was at the beginning. An uninterested man, full of knowledge, but very little conviction. 
to a deeply godly man who could care less about his knowledge but would die for his conviction. That is the training of the word of God. That is the training of the word of God. And he closes this little section with three very important ideas that I don't, I don't have time to expound upon. He says that all of this is particularly for righteousness sake, in righteousness sake, which means that the full context of everything that is taking place is, is while being in right standing with God and trying to work out that right standing so that you may be complete, meaning lacking nothing. I mean, imagine that day. You know, that is the goal of the work of the Holy Spirit is that you will be glorified and lacking nothing. And that every day, all day, is one more step closer to that reality. And that you would be Equipped for every good work. Prepared with tools for every obstacle and opportunity. Prepared with tools for every obstacle and opportunity. That, my friends, is effective leadership. And that is from the depths of the riches of the word of God. What is the use? What is the usefulness of the piles and piles of leadership books produced all over the world if they are not simply supplementary to what we have in between the pages of this God-breathed book? What can one more author teach me? About leadership. God taught us leadership in Genesis 1 and 2 when he gave instructions toward obedience. And though they disobeyed those instructions, he still made a way for them to walk with him. Humanity. Forever. He made the first sacrifice. He gave the first covenant and the second and the third. He taught us about leading people in the life of Noah as he led men and women onto the ark. He taught us about leading people through the life of David as David worshipped God in and through war and through his brokenness. To see God exalted. He taught us through the wisdom of Solomon and his critical thinking and decision making skills. That too is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Maybe I'll, I need to make it a little more plain. This is both of our baby. Is it? Yes. It's my baby. No, it's my baby. No, it's my baby. Hmm. Cut the baby in half. Right? Like who even thinks that way? <laughs> Since it belongs to both of y'all, just cut the baby in half. No, let her have the baby. Oh, clearly it's, it's her baby. God taught us leadership in Christ. Is he bowed to serve, sacrificed to love, refused to be exalted, and ultimately gave his life? And God taught us leadership through the apostles as they trained and preached 
and walked alongside men and women to multiply themselves. I'm not against leadership books. But if they're not simply supplementary to to this right here in its wealth of knowledge and breath of glory and joy in encompassing the spirit of God and the ability to teach us how to lead effectively. If they're not simply supplementary, then what use are they? You can't tell me that there's a man walking the planet with his limited wisdom that's going to teach you how to lead better than the word of God, which is filled with the spirit of God. Now, what do we do with this? Well, I'm going to boil it down into one point. And they won't have it up there because I didn't give it to them in time, so I'll say it a few times. To lead effectively... To lead effectively, the word of God has to be premier in our lives. To lead effectively, the word of God has to be premier in our lives, acting as the lens through which we interpret the world. Acting as the lens through which we interpret the world in both the mundane and the major. In both the mundane and the major residing at the core of every critical decision. And residing at the core of every critical decision. Let me say it one more time. To lead effectively. And I said that on purpose. Because you can go out and lead without the word of God, but it won't be effective. And it won't be redemptive. And it won't be impactful. And it will be temporal. And it will only be a shadow of the possibilities herein. So to lead effectively, the word of God has to be premier in our lives. Meaning that you can't lead from the word if you're not walking with the word. How can you lead from what you don't know? It's one of the first mistakes that was ever made in my Christian walk. I came to faith when I was 15 years old, it's a pretty hilarious story that I don't have time to tell, but a young white man named Judah Vidros, who looked like a blonde Tom Cruise, literally harassed me into the kingdom. <laughs> There's nothing more embarrassing. At that time, this was, you know, this was pre-transcultural church stuff. I was still like, you know, very black power back then. Uh, just tell, tell him like it is. Like, oh no, don't let him loose. Uh, so I'm in the basketball court with, with all my black friends. And every day, Judah Vidro shows up and says, hey, buddy, uh, you, want, you want to come to youth group? Yeah? You know, <laughs> embarrassing me, shaming me into the kingdom of God. Shame has an effectual work. God can redeem it. Because I finally just went. I was like, all right, I'm going to go. Just don't ever, 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 ever come here again, and I'll go. <laughs> and of course, what happened that night? I went, the word was preached, and I got saved. Yeah. Now, why do I tell you that? Because that brother was walking in the word. Yeah. He was impacted by the word. The word was premiered in his life. 
And the reality is the reason that the word is not the lens through which we interpret the world is because we don't spend any time in the word. You can't lead from what you don't know. And I'm not trying to lay a burden on you of more quiet time. There should be a thirst for God in you so deep that you can't get away from this thing. And when you don't feel that thirst, hopefully you're in a community of people who you can tell, I ain't thirsty for the Lord right now. And they will pray for you and rebuke you and reprove you and instruct you and train you and walk you back to the word. Lead effectively. The word of God has to be premier in our lives, acting as the lens through which we interpret the world. Meaning that every single decision, that's why I said from the mundane to the major, every single decision of every single day should be made within the context of our reflection on the word of God. It's very hard to make bad decisions when you do it that way. I mean, from, from the absurd, right? Should I sleep with this girl? Well, what does the word say? Right? To the more complicated, should I plant a church? Should I take this job? Should I move to this neighborhood? Should I marry this person? Well, how does the word of God stir my heart? Who here can say with confidence that they consult the word before they make any decision? Me neither. So then how can we expect to be walking in the will of God, crying in worship service, God, tell me your will, but we ain't spending no time in his word where we can get to know his will. Every single decision, every single day should be made in reflection of the word of God. It has to be the lens through which we interpret the world. That's the only way we can lead effectively. It has to reside at the core of every critical decision. Every critical decision decision because what's the alternative well the alternative is to lead through how we've interpreted the world through our cultural lens which means that we have no room for anybody else's culture and how we lead and how we interpret the world or lead through our national lens which means we'll have a very very little concern for the global gospel movement because we are only leading through our national lens. Everything is about us. Everything is about me. Everything is about mine. Everything is about what God will do here in me, through me, right now. I don't care what's going on out there. Or we lead through our relational lens. Or we lead through our historical lens where we can't jump the hurdle of our own history in order to lead effectively. Or we lead through our educational lens or our ethnic lens, whatever you want to call it. Those are the things that we lean into when we're not lead, leading through the lens of the word of God. So I would challenge you to something greater. To imagine the impact and the effectiveness of your leadership if you truly led from the word and the word shaped how you interpreted the world. What would be different about your job, about your school, about your church if you didn't just open up the Bible to prepare a sermon, but you open up the Bible so that God could prepare your heart. What would be different? You want to be a better preacher? Spend more time with God. Stop listening to podcasts. Jocking that man style. <laughs> Spend some time with God. What would it be like? in our homes and with our children and with our wives if we led 
from the word rather than from our wisdom. The greatest leader in the world to date led that way. His name was Jesus. And according to my Bible, he is the one by his spirit, by the Holy Spirit, that we are aspiring to be like. So that's my hope for you. That you would not lead from your wisdom, but that you would lead from the word. That the word of God would be the lens through which you interpreted the world. Watch how it changes everything. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word, for the power of it, for its effectiveness, for the grace that we experience in experiencing your breath through it, that it is profitable for teaching, for instruction, for reproof, for rebuke, for correction, for training, that it is the tool, the way, the path, the foundation for all effective leadership. And I pray that we would experience a renewal in our love for the word so that we can be the leaders that you would have us to be. In Christ's name, amen.